Welcome to Open Banking Expo Unplugged, bringing you the brightest minds in open banking, open finance and beyond. Hello and welcome to another episode of Open Banking Expo's podcast series, Unplugged, with me, Ellie Duncan, Head of Content at Open Banking Expo. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Gela Boscovich, Head of Europe at the Financial Data and Technology Association, uh, often known as FData, which is a fintech industry lobbying organisation Gela was uh, recently at our uh, Open Banking Expo uh, Confex in London as one of the speakers there. Uh, And we're also speaking to Gela at uh, quite a crucial time because earlier this uh, week, so we're in November at the moment, Open Banking Expo and um, and FData announced a, a partnership to help sort of support, promote and foster a global open banking and open finance community. So great to have you as a guest today on the podcast, Gela. Thank you, Ellie. Really super excited about the partnership because, as you mentioned, um, the mission and the only mission that FData actually has is to promote uh, and to help encourage the rapid deployment and delivery of open banking and open finance because we firmly believe that uh, the efforts that are going into this are really about maximizing the economic value of the end consumer's money. And that's what matters most in transforming financial services. So really excited about the partnership and thank you for having me as a guest today. Well, look, let's find out a bit more about, um, obviously, your organisation, but but more importantly as well, your, your role at FData. So can you tell us what being head of Europe means? Uh, you know, if I knew, I would tell you. But <laughs> now, what it really is focused on is uh, the developments of PSD2. I mean, we're looking at the end of the delivery of the roadmap for PSD2, both in the UK and Europe. And our efforts are focused on ensuring that there are no obstacles to the delivery of those objectives. PSD2 was really about payments data being um, open, unfettered, and easily shared by the end consumer and the small business with any particular financial service provider of their choice, be it a big institution or a small fintech. And it opened up the nature of that data to move its speed and scale across the network and to move in such a way that it allows the end consumer to have better control, insight, and overview over their finances. So there have been a number of things that still sort of block that smooth delivery. A lot of the challenge has been uh, around the quality of an API. I mean, PSD2 didn't really foresee APIs as the technology delivery uh, mechanism. It was sort of technology neutral and it had been written around the time of screen scraping when screen scraping was really um you know, the way forward or the the way things were done, where security credentials were shared with a third party, your password, your login name, et cetera. And they would log into your accounts on your behalf. Everything shifted when APIs started to be um, implemented or or the the technology choice. And when the regulators decided that APIs were sort of the royal route forward, a lot of the challenges around ensuring the standards were streamlined, harmonized, and that everyone conformed and that they had a high performing API because it is about having unfettered and and immediate real-time access. And the moment that you 
put a bit of a chokehold on the access to the data, the entire system falls apart. And there are failures for those, you know, those services to be executed. So initially it was about API performance and conformance. And then we start to see little things that sort of crop up that really put a damper on how things um, are delivered. One, for example, is reauthentication, secure customer authentication and the need to reauthenticate every 90 days. That's a massive obstacle. And we finally were able to convince the authorities last year in the UK to take a look at that and examine how it was really an unintended consequence that was detrimental to the, to the fintech ecosystem, but ultimately detrimental to the consumer because they were also cut off from the access to that information that once it had been granted under a consent model, um, that they were that the consumer was was cut off from those services um, every ninety days if they failed to renew and reauthenticate, and that reauthentication journey was often clunky and uh, multiple step and redirect and all sorts of different things that made it a big chore. But also, things were cut off at day ninety, and if you didn't renew at day ninety, you were absolutely screwed and had to set up the service from scratch. The European Banking Authority has a consultation, which is due next week, that where they've also examined the question and they've had an entirely different approach than the UK did. Um, but that, for example, is some, one of the things that we've been lobbying on. We also lobby on the notion of AML and having fintechs be required to perform AML, whether or not they're an account information service provider or a payment initiation service provider, that one of the unintended consequences of rolling over the definition of a financial institution into PSD2 was that all of those smaller companies that really just access data, but don't actually have any financial instruments that move or are part of that value chain that moves money are required to perform AML. And that's a massive obstacle to entry in the market for a lot of firms. We did a cost analysis of what it would be for a new fintech to actually put in an AML system and all of the compliance and governance um, functionality and operations that are required to do that. And it's another, you know, it's an extra 2 million in capital that's required for year one and an extra million per year just to maintain that. And that's a very small FinTech. And if you look at the cost of that and aggregate that over the number of third-party providers in the market, and you think of the capital requirements that are now, you know, that this additional capital requirement for a small firm, Maybe we revisit the notion of making those those fintechs be additional police for the ecosystem in terms of financial crime and and money laundering. And look at proportionality. And we've seen evidence of that lobbying um, with HM Treasury's uh, consultation, in fact, on AML that closed earlier in October. So those are some of the things that FData focuses on. Really, it's about standards and harmonization for the tech, but it's also about removing the obstacles that are in the legislation that were unintended and unforeseen, as well as making sure that the voice of the, the fintechs are, are, are well represented in the forums that discuss Things like the SEPA API access and, you know, looking at premium APIs and different business models, et cetera. So we focus on those things, representing our members. Our members are all licensed and accredited fintechs um, that operate in both markets. And we just want to make sure that they have an opportunity to have a fair and competitive playing field, that they are, you know, able to actually fulfill the the mandate of PSD2, which is to improve competition, promote innovation, and improve the end customer's financial lives so long-winded explanation for what we do but there you go no that's that's great I mean um and I suppose we're, we're talking about Europe there as if it's kind of one homogenous kind of um region but of course 
different parts of Europe and um, are at very different stages, aren't they, of of open banking and and open finance. So, for example, you know, the UK and perhaps the Nordics are seen as kind of leading the way and have what you might call really kind of healthy fintech ecosystems. But but it really does vary, doesn't it, within Europe? So uh, is there a way of, of kind of, as at FData, of, of being able to kind of target, you know, those different kind of countries within Europe and, and making sure those fintechs get the right kind of help because there are so many different kind of stages of, of open banking? Well, we're not the only trade association that operates in Europe, of course. So there are some that have much more regional focus and a lot of um, uh, specific national country levels have their own fintech associations and they do, you know, they do a, a lot of work on behalf of their nascent ecosystems. Um, but it is sort of a, a hare and a tortoise race in, in certain parts of the region. But if you look at what PSD2 does for the on, and, and you have to remember that every single member state onshores the legislation. So they adopt a version of PSD2 and they adopt uh, their own sort of timeline outside of the mandated requirement to go live from PSD2. And how they choose to orchestrate that delivery is sometimes really determined by the local market. And there are some unique differences in the way Europe and the UK treated them, uh, the delivery of open banking. And that does also mean that there's a, a different entry point into the lobbying efforts or the advocacy efforts. In the UK, we have a trustee that oversaw um, and the, the orchestration harmonization and again, the compliance or the conformance and the performance um, around the technology and set out a roadmap of different functionalities that had to be delivered within a certain time frame, and brought the ecosystem together to dis discuss and sort of debate some of the merits of doing things in a particular order or doing things in a certain way. And there was input on the standard from all, all facets of industry. Europe is a general collective. None of the member states really adopted a trustee delivery model and they left it to the banks to choose. There is a standard that's, and discussions around standards are um, active at the Berlin Group and STET, et cetera. Uh, but there was no single standard for the market itself, irrespective of it being Eastern Europe or the Nordics or Western um, or the Mediterranean, didn't matter. It was around technical specifications rather than technical standards. And the divergence of those two choices also make a difference in terms of how viable open banking is uh, within a particular market. Also, the nature of the banks and their choice in adopting the business model and embracing the business model also meant that there is a different level of delivery based on market appetite from the incumbents. And unless you're looking at central coordination, you're going to get a different set of patterns that are followed or different set of outcomes that happen. And so it makes a, it's, it's very different in terms of where you pinpoint the entry for having discussions with either the regulators or the, the delivery coordination um, uh, and orchestration arm, if there is one, or if you're having to sort of work with a conglomeration of banks that through their associations are advocating for the greatest amount of independence and choice for each institution to do as they wish. 
And that means efforts um, are either concentrated with a, a very easy, seamless entry point for that, or they're widely distributed. And so the level of effectiveness um, for advocacy and for trade associations and the lobbying efforts will be diluted depending on the different models. And I think that's the case with Europe. And in, in terms of, you know, being further along or which markets, uh, regional markets are perhaps more active in, and adopting them in a greater degree entirely depends on the local regulator, on the business model that the bank has decided to adopt the local um, incumbent firms and the nature of also getting licensed and regulated if you're, you know, if you're a TPP or a third party provider. So it's, it depends. I mean, and you also have to think about the health of the banks themselves and certain, uh, certain economies, the, the banks are doing much better um, than others. And we're seeing a, a disparate profitability ratio for the banks, which also means that they will deliver or they'll open up their technology stacks differently as well. So banking hasn't done too well, especially in Western Europe. Um, surprisingly, uh, funds in the index are doing really well in, in Eastern Europe. And, and that's kind of a surprise um, considering the lending portfolios and the risks associated with lending portfolios in the last couple of years with the pandemic. But that also means that how they choose to open up those data economies differs. You know, it really does depend on the local market. Long answer, short question, long answer though. <laughs> no, I think, I think, you know, you had you had quite a bit to cover there, and uh, and maybe then if we can focus on the UK just for a bit, because I guess we're at a bit of a, a, a crunch point in the UK, and in, in the sense that obviously uh, the open banking implementation entity is is very much kind of coming to the end of of the roadmap that it initially set out, and uh, in the UK we're we're kind of waiting to hear from the CMA about what the kind of the next um, step or the stage of this uh, open banking to open finance sort of process might be. And, and perhaps there's another kind of future entity that, that comes in to replace the OBIE. But we're obviously all kind of waiting to hear on that. What do you think um, needs to happen in the UK, um, I guess, from a fintech perspective, really, in order to kind of ensure that the momentum that we've had so far kind of continues and, and we don't just see the end of, of the OBIE's kind of roadmap as, as the end of, of everything, really? Yeah, because it is not the end of everything. It's actually the only, it's the first step, right? I mean, the limitation of the payment service regulations that were adopted into the UK, the PSD2 version, is that it's only about payments. And now the discussion is really extending to open finance. But again, it's that that coordination entity, that trustee um, functionality that orchestrated the delivery of the tech to the market um, has to continue. And it's interesting that the CMA has separated out a couple of functions, right? This init initially, the OBIE was not anticipated to be a permanent institution. It was a temporary thing that was supposed to deliver on the legislation and then sort of be reabsorbed and, you know, la-di-da, there's uh, this, this wonderful utopia where everybody coordinates everything and everybody's happy. Clearly not the case. And there are things that were needed, for example, the trust framework and the management of the trust framework. And we saw the cruciality of that when the EIDAS certificates were revoked on the European side. 
And having to have a replacement, an immediate replacement for a trust framework, having an re immediate replacement for the IDAS certificates uh, last year was an important function that Open Banking Limited, which is a, you know an incorporated uh, company at this point, not just the delivery arm, was did provide. And they do monitoring functionality as well. And the monitoring is about the conformance and the performance of the APIs, because there has to be oversight. I mean, you can't have a market, if, if an efficient market, when one institution's API functions differently than another, there has to be a particular standard that is met. And that reliability and performance. So there's the monitoring function that will continue to be uh, performed. And the CMA specifically set that out side of um, the next, you know, they set those aside as those continue, those two things have to continue um, to be provided to the market. And irrespective of what happens with OBIE, those things are, are necessary and they become sort of permanent fixtures. And their scalability and their, their importance becomes much more profound when you start to add in additional data verticals outside of payments. So when you start to add in credit and um, uh, investments and pensions, et cetera, all of that becomes much more complex. And you need to have also someone monitor that the new APIs are also performing well because that matters in terms of efficiency, but also that that trust framework becomes more complicated because then you've got that many more parties that are that are exchanging data. So in terms of what the CMA is doing and where they're going next, really, they're missing some crucial information because the design of the next iteration that will address open finance actually needs to have input on where open finance is going and the trajectory of that for the market. So the FCA should be releasing soon some of their vision around open finance and what's next and laying out some of the next steps. But in a wider context, the Ministry of Business, Industrial Strategy and Economy or Business, Economy and Industrial Strategy, Bays, is also looking at the intersection of multiple industry data sets, smart data economy. And that also would dictate what a future governance structure should look like, again, because it goes beyond open finance and thinking about adding in communications and utilities and eventually health and transportation and all of the other data verticals. And that intersection will have to have incredibly tight governance. But the next entity will inherit much of that responsibility and accountability for orchestrating that intersectionality of multiple industry data transmission networks and data exchange. So you want a governance structure and a future entity that is future-proof in the sense that it can evolve and adapt to accommodate additional data verticals, but also additional industry data sets, actually additional industries. I mean, those two things are missing. Unless the CMA has some sort of sightline into what those future outcome or objectives are, then the design of the governance is going to have to be unpicked no matter what. So if they were if they were to have done what we expected them to do, which was uh, issue a sort of an opinion and uh, a governance structure a couple of months ago or earlier in the year, we would have to unpick all of that anyway. Right. So yeah. there's a there's the matter of time. The UK market needs a little bit more time. The CMA needs a bit more time. Bayes and the FCA need to provide 
input and insight into where open finance is going and certainly where smart data is going. And there also needs to be another round of industry feedback because what we were given in terms of consultation was a singular model. There weren't any alternatives. There wasn't really any additional creativity imbued into the process of potential multiple governance design structures to feedback on or to consider. And there's sort of this interesting balance of trying to do something that's a practical piece of work and getting something in place that can really continue to provide momentum for the delivery of the last leg of the roadmap, specifically VRPs or very real recurring payments and sweeping, and to use that as a bridge into open finance. And that's a practical piece of work that actually succeeded in terms of what, you know, what was offered up to the market to consult on uh, earlier in the year. And then there's the counterpart, which is a long-term vision of where that smart data um, economy objective is going. And how do you sort of use principles to organize those layers of governance and allow for the flexibility and adaptability that would shift with the market and respond to the market as the market actually provides real-time data and real real tangible impact and feedback into what the governance structure needs to to look like as it matures. So there are different ways of approaching this. And I think what the what the UK market needs is a bit of both the practical, which you can you make that model and and you know finish up the roadmap and and have a governance structure that that has KPIs that can be measured and we actually have something that we can uh, work against or work, you know, plan to work against versus something that will actually be fit for purpose in the next five to 10 years. And how do you balance that? I think a little more time and a little more information from certain parties would certainly help. But as to what we need, I don't have the answer to the exact thing other than another opportunity for the market and for, for industry to come together to creatively contribute to multiple potential models because there's there's a hybrid somewhere in between the long-term vision and the practical immediate output and it requires i think a bit more consultation and a, and certainly a bit more creativity and multiple models need to be presented and argued and debated and we'll probably find a, a nice hybrid out of three or four models rather than just you know looking at one singular and trying to pick that apart so yeah, a bit more coordination, a bit more um, collaboration from from the whole market and figuring this out and helping the CMA think this through. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you see, it needs to be a little bit more expansive maybe than it has been in the past. Yeah, I think uh, I think a, I think there need to be more models submitted, and I don't think there can be one particular organization that can own the design of this. Um, convening is an incredible power and to be able to to be an organization that convenes the industry is one thing but to own the entire process i don't think i don't think that makes sense i think there need to it needs to be a multi-party multi-stakeholder because it is technically a multi-stakeholder um uh issue right it's it is the institutions it is the uh, tpps and the fintechs it's the consumers it's um you know and the regulators need to have some some sight into that but there are a number of regulators that are part of the system that also should you know be contributing to the conversation not just as observers but having an opinion as well 
And is there anything you think the UK can learn from Australia where, you know, I know they've, they have the consumer data, right? It's, it's slightly, a slightly different approach, but ultimately they, they're aiming rather than, I, I guess, in a simplistic way, they're aiming for open finance, um, sort of straight away in a, with, with the CDR. So yeah, is, is there anything that you think, um, the UK can look, um, and indeed maybe the rest of Europe can look to Australia and, and kind of, take some learnings from from there? Yeah, I think first and foremost, it is actually having an explicit consumer data right and spelling that out. That particular principle is implied in the legislation that we have here in the PSR and our GDPR. But having an explicit right to be able to direct your data to an accredited and licensed party to analyze it, to crunch it, to do whatever it is to do to deliver, to, that they need to do in order to deliver a service. It's a consumer choice and it shouldn't be strangle held by any organization. I don't care the size of that organization, um, you know, from the tiniest FinTech to the, the largest institution, having explicit consumer data right is critical. And I think it would behoove the UK to do that. I also think that the way they've designed uh, this, here are the data verticals that are included, means that the entire industry is leveling up at the same time. So we have a staggered approach. And if we look at certain verticals within financial services, and I'll point to pensions as one of them, um, that a lot of the institutions haven't done a digital transformation and their ability to move data in and out of their, uh, in and out of their caches is incredibly limited. They're not digitally transformed enough to be able to do that. And that means that depending on what institution you have your pension fund sitting with or you know where the money is held, that you as a consumer, you as a, a, a small business with the you know managing that on behalf of your employees, don't have a choice. In Australia, all of the industry is leveling at the same time. It doesn't matter if it's the payment side, if it's the credit side, if it's the pensions or investment or the superannuation or whatever it happens to be, that all of them are going through this digital transformation at the same time and are expected to be able to move that data at speed and scale. That is not the case with this, uh, with, with this market. And I think that's the massive detriment of the end consumer is that the investment and the time that we've been discussing the technology revolution for the last 10, 15, you know, 10, 15 years has not happened at the same pace in insurance or in pensions or investment. And all of those particular in, uh, verticals are going to have to go through a digital transformation in order to be compliant and are going to have to have API strategies and are going to have to be able to consume their own data and are going to have to be able to have um, data lakes and data repositories that are organized and the data lexicon and syntax itself has to be revamped. All of that work is going to take additional time and to actually realize the benefits of open finance that will be delayed for this market because it hasn't been mandated and it hasn't been enforced via legislation. The market has chosen not to do it Parts of the market have chosen not to do it, and now they're going to. It also means it's a it's a hell of a lot longer roadmap for that end goalpost to be met, right? That end destination is another 10, 20 years out. And I think Australia was, uh, you know, it may have been a, a massive, um, massive investment and in time and effort uh, price tag to do it all at once, but the expectation is set. And they have a timeline and they'll be 
way further ahead than the UK will be in five years. So I think that's a that's another lesson. Definitely give us a, an explicit consumer data right and make sure that the industry knows that mandate. They will be compelled to share and they will have to invest and they need to start thinking about that now. They're really behind the eight ball at this point. Yeah, I mean, you, went, you mentioned kind of 10, 15 years out, I think there. But you, you believe that that's how long it might take really to kind of achieve, as it were, open finance then? It's a bit cynical, but unless an organization is compelled by law to do this, and there are very few market incentives to do otherwise, as we've seen, you know, there are different, there are different ways of approaching it, market-led or regulation-led in terms of opening up the economy or opening, not even opening up the economy, but opening up um, the data. And if you don't have to, you won't. Because again, if you don't have an explicit consumer data right, you as a custodian of that data can claim ownership of it. And that means that you can hold on to that. And it also means you have a captive market. You know, your current customers can't easily port their data. It's not mobile and it's not portable. And that is, that's sort of, you know, captive, you know, captive audience, um, captive consumer group that you're holding on to. And it doesn't allow for that free flow of, of choice. And you're going to do that because you are worried about continuing to hold market share and continue to have consumers to serve. So unless they're compelled, we've seen that these institutions will hold on to that data and will hold on to those captive consumers. And that doesn't actually promote competition. So the entire push to improve competition and innovation and outcome is stymied. But we've also seen from the delivery of open banking, it's taking a lot longer because, again, some institutions are willing to move more quickly than others. But if you have a set standard for all of them to meet, it can take a while for those who are less interested in embracing the new model and holding and are more attached to holding on to their old business models. They'll drag their feet. And it'll also cost a lot more. It'll cost time. It'll cost a lot more in capital. And it means that there's a delay in terms of the end benefits being delivered to the market. It's, we've seen it. We have, exa- we have examples of that. And I think that uh, that just only gets amplified and magnified with the number of participants in the different data verticals inside of financial services that are going to be part of this. So again, you know, think about the problems and the challenges that we've had for nine banks in the market to deliver just payment data. And, you know, how many years have we been working on this? And we're still not done. Think about that when you start to add in credit and mortgages and investment or pensions or whatever insurance and the number of actors in those particular verticals. It just compounds the problem. It will take longer. Everything always takes longer than one anticipates, especially when you're trying to coordinate and harmonize a number of different actors. And I think that's the that'll be the case here. At least in Australia, they were all forewarned and they knew it was coming and they know they have to make the investment. So it's still a long journey, but it shortens the the timeline because the expectations are are set and they're universal. It's not the case for the financial service market in the UK. Okay, and, and so with all of that in mind, then I mean, uh, let's talk about sort of next year and and F data's kind of focus for twenty twenty two. What 
what have you got planned for next year? And, and yeah, what, what are the kind of strategic uh, focus areas uh, for your uh, organization? Well, we're looking at really that that handshake between open banking and open finance. And we're very eager to see what the FCA has to say about these things. And we're hoping to be able to take the lessons that have been learned from open banking. For example, the 90-day reauth, which we're hoping to see that, that, conclu- that consultation come to a close. But even maybe fine-tuning a bit more of the, the proposed model and the consent model to make it easier for consumers to get onboarded and to take advantage of uh, the, the variety of, of different um, use cases that are on the market, but ensure that they're never cut off from that service uh, to make sure that we test that right for open finance. Because again, we're gonna, it's going to be only more complex for a consumer to manage their money and have different options when the different data verticals are opened up. And to continue to ensure that, that you know, the, the, ex- the consumer experience uh, is good and that their safety standards and their cybersecurity standards and that we're, you know, we're better in preventing fraud, that we're taking, you know, we're smoothing out all of these these wrinkles in open banking and taking the lessons that come from that and ensuring that we're already framing those out for the next data sets that are coming in to, to open finance. And for us, it's also working as, as closely as we possibly can with uh, Bayes to feed into their smart data thinking and to ensure that we you know, are coordinating with um, open savings and investment and other associations that are thinking about these uh, these use cases and and you know helping provide insights from from the open banking experience, but also contributing that on and ensuring that our members have that opportunity to also start to consume those additional data data sets in a way that makes sense, even though they started out just in account services or account information services and payment information services their payment initiation services that they're all, you know, they still can, they still have an opportunity to play in those fields. And so a lot more coordination collaboration um, with the open finance set as kind of our 2022 strategy. I mean, we're really excited to see VRP come to market. We're really excited to see um, sweeping actually get properly delivered and then, you know, accelerating the commercial API conversation with the banks as well. And ensuring that we can start to deliver more value now that the this this last piece of functionality is being delivered. So that's kind of the 2022 agenda. Yeah, lots to keep you busy then. Um, and <laughs> just on- and playground, right? <laughs> <laughs> and just on that about VRPs and sweeping, because obviously we've heard that the the implementation sort of date has been has been pushed back, hasn't it, from January to July on the basis that the CMA9 just wouldn't have been ready uh, by sort of end of January next year. So um, are you, what's your initial kind of response to, to that? Are you, do you feel like it is a more realistic timescale for for the banks to work to in, in the UK? Yes. And initially uh, for earlier roadmap items, we were looking at, at a managed rollout anyway, right? The the thing is that the sandbox testing for a lot of the APA environments don't mimic real life. They don't actually, the utility is low. So having a managed rollout where you're actually testing live in the market uh, is surprisingly a better approach for the UK. And to have a sight line on the detailed plans by the end of January makes sense. Again, 
you know, everything takes longer than we anticipate, uh, irrespective of the CMA saying, have it done in January, the go live testing actually will take a little bit of time. And to ensure that the market is ready and that the go live is ready and having a managed rollout for July actually does make sense. It also means that we can take advantage of additional exercises like the VRP hackathon that, you know, we just wrapped up um, and that we can start to see use cases be more refined. We can see evidence of those use cases uh, and their value and utility to consumers be presented. And it, it means that, that it's a smoother rollout. It would have been nice to have VRP ready for 2022, but again, it took so much time to negotiate the initial standard um, for VR for sweeping and to, to map that against the you know a timeline um, with the pandemic that intervened in, in, in the meantime, um, to to expect it to be any earlier would have been uh, sort of a, a fool's mission. Um, we would have gotten a very poor API and a very poor and, and fragmented availability, and it would depend on the bank that you banked with if you could do this or not, and it could take another six months if you were a consumer that didn't necessarily bank with one that was a first mover, all of that sort of thing. So I think it's a more rational approach. Um, I'm hoping that all of them can actually go live in July and that we see the end of 2022 really deliver on the sweeping proposition in a fundamental and material way. Yeah. And as you say, hopefully, ultimately it will, it will stand to, to ensure that the consumer has has a better experience, uh, payments experience, really, um, in all of this, which is obviously really, really crucial. Um, Gayla, thank you so much for um, speaking to me today, for joining the podcast. It was, it was fascinating to hear from you. Uh, we'll obviously keep a close eye on what um, FData is, is up to over the coming 12 months as well. Ellie, thank you. And thank you for letting me wax on. I know I'm a bit of a blowhard and I tend to get fantastic <laughs> about those. So thank you for allowing me to do it and indulging in my in my need to talk about this. But it's been an absolute pleasure. And we're really excited for the partnership between Open Banking Expo and FData. So I know we'll be keeping tabs on one another. Absolutely. Yeah, great. Well, um, we'll speak to you very soon, I'm sure. Thank you again. Thanks, Ellie. My thanks again to Gela for coming onto the podcast today. Great to hear what FData has planned for 2022 as well, of course. Uh, We'll certainly keep you informed there. To listen to other episodes of Open Banking Expo Unplugged, then go to the on-demand section of openbankingexpo.com. Until next time, bye for now.